2: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm David Hamilton Golland, the host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Charlie Sawyer about his book, B.B. King, From Indianola to Icon. Charlie, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to join you. Thank you.
2: I wonder if we could begin uh, the interview with you telling us a bit about yourself.
1: Uh comes to mind. Sonny Boy Williamson's great song, Don't Start Me to Talking, I'll Tell Everything I Know. So I'm born in 1941, makes me uh, 81 years old. I'm retired. Uh, I live uh, north of Boston in a semi-rural town with my wife. Uh, I have a son who lives in New York City. He's uh, 30 years old. And uh, I'm retired from all my professions. Uh, And the last three years, I've been working intensely on this book, which uh, was published uh, only a few weeks ago, uh, in the tail end of August.
2: And it is a beautiful book, B.B. King, From Indianola to Icon. Uh, By its size, it has the look of a coffee table book, and it is replete with, uh, dare I say, hundreds of photos, yes, yes um, uh, almost all of which include BB King. Some include yourself. Um, how did you meet the great BB King?
1: I met him in 1968 when he was uh, booked into uh, a famous jazz room north of Boston, a small club seating about 200 people, and he was booked for an extended stay. I think it was nine days, so bridging two weekends. Uh, and being a small club, this gave me easy access up to, up close to the stage because the the, the tables for the uh, uh, visitors were right up to the edge of the stage, so I could get real proximity during his performances. And I met him during a intermission, a uh, and uh, he introduced himself to me uh, and uh, integrated me into his conversation. He was very friendly. He made me feel at ease at once. Uh, And I came back night after night. I had a million questions. I had a tape recorder and a notebook and a camera. Uh, And he was always gracious uh, and always put me at my ease. Uh, And that was the start of a friendship that uh, went on until he died in 2015.
2: And uh, it wasn't just you. He he sort of had a way with people, did he not?
1: Yes, he had a gift, I would say, a great talent uh, for uh, establishing intimacy with people, even for 10, 20 seconds and, and under almost any circumstance. He gave you this feeling that you were the only person that mattered to him in that moment. He always gave you his full attention. Uh, and he had uh, a great repertoire of social graces. Uh, and he he lived in a world where those uh, graces were, were not so common and very important.
2: He also employed them on the stage in his interactions with the audience.
1: Yes. All of his performances were a, a conversation in, in one way or another. Uh, and this was true, I think, from, from the very beginning, uh, and it didn't matter the the size of the audience, the nationality of the audience, the race. None of these things uh, were obstacles to his great capacity, and he, he gave a, uh, an estimated eighteen thousand performances. He uh, he was never he never took a real vacation. Wow! Uh, uh, And from uh, the 1940s uh, in Memphis, uh, straight through. He played 342 one-night stands in 1956 and worked the other nights of the year.
2: Incredible. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a result of your collaboration uh, with him through your photography and through all the questions you were asking of him, uh, and indeed, through uh, some bona fide historical research, archival research. And in fact, um, you were able to publish your first book about B.B. King in 1980. And then you updated that biography in the 1990s when you added a chapter for a publisher looking to do a translation. What prompted you to add to the canon now with this book?
1: Well, I've always known that I had this archive of uh my f- f- photography, um, the, uh, the Arrival of B.B. King, that's the title of the 1980 biography, The Arrival of B.B. King had a lot of photographs, but it was a standard biography, and the photographs were all gathered together in two or three sections, mm-hmm. and they were there to illustrate the text. And time and again, I would have chosen the best picture to illustrate the, one thing or another and and yet this was really kind of the best of a cluster of really powerful uh, photographs so when I retired uh, in 2015 uh, I retired from my uh, career in software uh, I uh, I began turning to digitizing, My archive. I think I have every photograph I ever took, uh, Bibi and others, Uh, and I I began amassing uh, what was needed for a digital studio, and I and I began scanning uh, my uh, photographs, and uh, uh, there was this prize waiting for me, which was the archive of uh, Bibi photographs which were, I estimate, around 3,000 photographs. Mm -hmm. Uh, And uh, I I had a a relationship with the B.B. King Museum. Uh, I had been uh, consulting to the museum during its planning. Uh, And uh, so I contacted them and said, "Uh, I think I have the basis of a photographic book uh, and uh, I visited them down there. They, they invited me to come down to uh, Mississippi, uh, and we worked out uh, a way of making a book which is first and foremost a photographic album. Mm-hmm. So I want to emphasize this. From Indianola to Icon is, is a lot of things, but most importantly, it is a photographic work, and it's based on the photographs that I hope people will will judge the quality of of the work. Uh, And so I I began mining this uh, rich uh, lore uh, and writing to accompany it. Uh, And the museum encouraged me, and eventually I found a a publisher, a fantastic publisher, Schiffer Books. Uh, And uh, and, and it uh, was three years of hard work, uh, and now it's out.
2: And congratulations on it Thank being you. out. The cover photo, the cover image, is B.B. Uh, King with his arms outstretched, taking in the adulation of a crowd and giving it back to them. And it also it has a connection to that museum in Indianola. Is that correct?
1: Yes. Well, uh, the museum uh, adopted this profile of B.B., it's an unusual uh, uh, profile because you don't see Bibi's face. You don't see his features because it's taken from slightly behind, looking across from behind.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and very important is that his guitar, which is hanging off his shoulder, is very clearly and dramatically uh, represented. So mm-hmm. you have this... Uh, uh, po- pose of the Redeemer, the Redemption, uh, with his arms stretched and his head turned back, and Lucille thrusting out. So it was very graphic, and the, uh, the museum planners recognized that that would be a good uh, a, a good symbol for the museum, and they adopted it, and and it's now part of the the logo of the museum.
2: You might even call it the icon. The icon,
1: yes. Of the yes, <laughs> and, and that same image uh, has a place in Jackson, Mississippi, in the Museum of Mississippi History. Mm-hmm. Uh, they contacted me, and they uh, licensed the use of the picture, uh, and they turned it into a mural-sized relief. So it's, uh, you know, it's like two-and-a-half dimensions, and it hangs in their, in their uh, uh, main gallery. Uh, and uh, so uh, now I hear my chair squeaking. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't help that. Yes. So, I mean, that's your question was, how did you come to, to this? Well, it was in order to realize the, the great power of my archive Which uh, Mm -hmm. now the text uh, is to support the images, whereas the previous biography, the images were there as illustrations for the text.
2: Yes. Yes. Now you've divided this book into two sections. Can you speak a bit about the structure, why you chose it, what it does for the book?
1: Well, uh, the first section, book one, uh, is. Chronicling uh, BB's—I uh, um, don't know what to call it, his migration, his tr- uh, transition from the Chitlin' Circuit to mainstream, to Las Vegas, to, uh, uh, to uh, you know the most prestigious, prestigious uh, stages uh, in in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, beyond that, there's a kind of shift in the nature of the narrative uh and uh, it, it really the the, uh, the story of this book is the story of the previous book, the actual narrative line. Uh, and once the book of the 1980s published, there's a natural kind of transition to the... Uh, the side effects, you know, the what what happened with the book after it was published, and what happened with BB's uh, career. That's that's the rationale. Mm-hmm.
2: Makes sense. We are speaking with Charles Charlie Sawyer about his book BB King: From Indianola to Icon, published this year by Schiffer Publishing. I'd like to switch gears a bit, Charlie, and talk about what must have been a difficult section for you to write. Uh, Your second wife, Bistra Lankova, died in a tragic car accident. You include a photo of the two of you with B.B. King in 1980, and you've written elsewhere about the tragedy, but you elected not to recount what happened to her in this book. As a writer, how did it feel to revisit this painful episode in your life, and how did it affect, how did it affect your process?
1: Well, um, oh boy, that's the hardest question I've been asked so far, I think. <laughs> um, the, the idea of revisiting the, the tragedy uh, c- kind of supposes that somehow the tragedy is not with me, when it inhabits my life all the time. Mm -hmm. Uh, I I was uh, injured in the same uh, catastrophic uh, auto accident, Uh, and I had uh, PTSD uh, in the aftermath, and and I managed to climb out of the well of uh, PTSD with uh, Bistra's closest friend, who is now my wife, Sherry Hoyt, and is the editor of this book. And I think that's as much as I can say. I don't know that it affects my process. I mean, okay, what's my process? Well, my process is now very much involved in Bistra's, uh, in uh, Sherry's uh, editing uh, she edited every line, every photograph in this book. Uh, and uh, nothing gets out of this house, nothing I write gets out of this house without her uh-huh. uh, her brilliant editing. Uh, and uh, there, there is this uh, continuous narrative that if, as we wind all the way back, oh, how did Sherry appear in my life? Well, she was Bistra's closest friend. Well, how did Bistra appear in my life? And you know, sooner so to the fact I was born in nineteen forty-one. <laughs> so I, I don't I think it's about all I could say on that. But thank you for the question.
2: Oh, that, that's okay. And um and, uh, but I think if we do take it a little bit back with Bistra, there's a moment of serendipity that I think you recount incredibly well in the book in nineteen eighty where you and Bistra and B.B. King are in Cambridge. And maybe if you could talk a little bit about the importance of that moment in time for not just for this book that has ultimately come out of it uh, and for this scene, but also in terms of questions of music and questions of race and and questions about uh, the American story.
1: Uh, yes, the important thing about that, uh, that day when, uh, when Beebe was a guest at Harvard is to know that he was a guest at the Neiman Foundation for Journalism, uh, which is a very prestigious uh, uh, institution, uh, which has been, uh, I couldn't tell you how far back. Uh, it, it's a long-standing uh, and it is a year-long, academic year-long program uh, in which uh, journalists uh, are given a, a uh, the journalists move with, with their families to Cambridge and they are supported by the Neiman Foundation. And the selection of each Neiman class is a, an attempt to balance the nationality and the type of journalism. Uh, and Bistra, who came from Eastern Europe uh, as part of the national film and television uh, organization, she was a uh, executive producer of feature films. She was uh, a uh, Neiman Fellow the year before. She lived in Cambridge uh, and quite by chance, I had met her during that that year before. Now, the important thing here in terms of BB and his career is the the Neiman Fellows are selected uh, as the uh, the next generation of superstars as journalists. Uh, and in fact, uh, there were Pulitzer prizes. There there were. Uh, uh, and and, and Beebe was a dinner guest and came with his rhythm section uh, and set up in the library at the Lipman House, the uh, headquarters of the Neiman Foundation. And uh, he 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 made it clear that he would come, but he would not be a, he would not come to give a speech. He would only speak when he had his guitar in his hands. So after the lunch, we re- went to the library, uh, and uh, with no public address, no PA system, nothing to amplify his voice, and tiny little amplifiers, and a snare drum with brushes, he gave a little concert. Now you have to know that the, that thi- the this gave him an intimacy with some of the, mo- the most powerful journalists and trendsetters and taste-setters in the coming decades, one of the uh, f- uh, fellows there became the managing editor of the uh, New York Times uh, uh, editorial page, For just for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, so it, it was uh, Beeser's connection to the Neiman Foundation, which secured the invitation. Uh, uh, for Bibi to come and be our guest. Uh, and when we, uh, when I walked with him to the car after all of this, and this, by the way, there's a whole chapter in my book about this day and this visit. Uh, on the way to the car, I said, "You, you, you they're going to send you a check for a hundred bucks for being a speaker. And he said, I don't know. I don't need it. You keep it. Use it to buy a ring for the lady. Well, okay, we weren't yet planning to get married, but we did get married uh, like three three or four weeks later. Uh, and uh, so there was a, a, a real connection in here, which continued. And then uh, when Sherry and I uh, married and had a, a, a son— uh, my son grew up uh, feeling as if his grandfather was Baby King. Mm-hmm. Uh, should I tell the story about the dressing room and the shower stall and the little seal?
2: By all means.
1: So uh, this is the first time when Sherry and I uh, had a chance to to bring our son Sam, three-year-old Sam, to meet Baby when he was playing here in Massachusetts. Uh, and uh, we had a a grand and warm reunion in his dressing room, and Sam started, you know, wandering around, and and there was a, a shower and toilet right off the dressing room, and Sam found his way to the toilet that had this spring handle, which he engaged, and it made a huge sound, and he loved it. So the first thing Sam did, the second thing he did was to fire off the toilet again. And I, I got nervous. I said, Sam, and Bibi said, don't don't interfere. Let him, let him have his fun. Well, after a little while, S- Sam grew tired of the toilet. And then his attention came to Lucille, the guitar, on a guitar stand, standing up in the shower stall. And he started toward Lucille, and I <laughs> gasped. <laughs> ah, and Sam and Bibi said, "No, no, no, no! Don't interfere. Let him check it out. Let him explore." And Sam came and felt Lucille ran his fingers up and down the strings, uh, and then went on to the the next thing for his attention. Uh, so, <laughs> our fa- family life uh, had a component for uh, for Bibi and and. Uh, and our son's growing up uh, as B.B. King as a family member.
2: What an incredible story and what an incredible moment. Yes. Um, you've talked about how Sherry edits everything uh, before it ever gets out of the house, I think was what you said. Yeah. Um, let's talk a little bit more about your process uh, I think a lot of our listeners are writers themselves. Uh, can you tell us about your workspace, how you go about the act of writing, any particular preferences or, <laughs> or tools that you use?
1: Well, I find that the keyboard works rather well when my fingers are on it. That's, that's my, my process, my, my, my method. Um, I uh, – my process – I think through my hands onto the screen. Uh, and I'm not afraid to, uh, to be uh, wrong. I'm not afraid to be awkward. I'm not afraid. Mm-hmm. Uh, the important thing is uh, to keep the flow going. Uh, I have uh, a studio office room. Uh, which is primarily uh, for my photography. I have a big printer. Uh, I'm surrounded by books, and I have prints up on the wall of my work. Uh, I have uh, a photograph that I took when I was 11 years old, and right above that is a portrait of my parents uh, standing in front of the uh, front door, uh, very striking, very friendly uh, portrait of them, and uh, they're both gone by now, by the way. Uh, and, uh, and I greet them every morning. Uh, I start my working day uh, with an entry in a day book to, uh, to give the day, and the time at which I start, today, Monday, October 3rd, I started at 10.30, I take my blood pressure this morning it was uh, at ten thirty. It was one forty-two over seventy-seven, uh, and I write down the uh, over on the side. I have a few notes to prepare for today, uh, and uh, and I uh, I use uh, Microsoft Word, uh, and uh, I always have projects going. Um, and my my current uh, attention besides things like what we're doing right now uh, is working on a memoir uh, and uh, I've been contemplating a memoir for a long time uh, and you could see this book we're discussing today yes. as a a kind of book in a series of books of my memoir, because the the text in uh, from Indianola to Icon recounts my uh, odyssey, starting at Lenny's on the Turnpike in nineteen sixty eight, and ending with my uh, eulogy uh, at Beebe's funeral yes uh, and, and I, I I do talk about uh, occasionally about other things in my life but but uh, uh, so I'm uh, that that's where my my focus is right now uh, and eventually I show everything to sherry uh, and she is a brilliant line editor she's the best that I've ever uh, she will spot every passive voice and turn it around to active voice she'll find a better word she uh, irons out the wrinkles you know I provide the raw stuff and she makes it sing Hmm. so we we are uh, a pair we are a a writing team
2: like BB King and Lucille
1: exactly so I'm not sure which one I am, whether I'm Lucille or (laughs) B.B.
2: We're speaking with Charles Sawyer about his book, B.B. King, From Indianola to Icon, available now at Amazon and directly through the press at Schifferbooks.com. Schiffer spelled S-C-H-I-F-F-E-R. And while we were preparing for this interview, you asked me about Daniel DeVise's 2021 biography of BB King. What are your thoughts on his book?
1: Well, I'm a great fan of uh, of the book and a great admirer of Dan. Uh, he uh, interviewed me at some uh, length. Uh, his his book is. Uh, a complete and thorough and exhaustive and beautifully written biography of B.B. Of, uh, King. Uh, and, of course, uh, there are decades that, that my writing did not cover, which mm-hmm. uh, Dan's does cover. Uh, and we wrote, each wrote a blurb for the other's book, and his blurb, which appears right on the back of my book, says, nobody knows the B.B. King's story better than Charlie Sawyer. Uh, And I just uh, gushed with gratitude when I read that. And I said to myself, yes, that may be true, but only because I read Dan's book. (laughs) um, I'm sure you're just being modest. (laughs) No, I don't think so. (laughs) Yeah, so uh, I'm a great, if you really wanted to know B.B. King and to be, and to have a feeling of intimacy with him in his life by both books
2: <laughs> by all means um, other than the stories you've already told what is your most enduring memory of B.B.
1: King my most enduring memory oh my gracious well I have a, a lot of individual memories that uh that I think a representative of the man, uh, I remember a a fan. Just a second, David. You all right, dear? Uh, That's Sherry downstairs with a twisted ankle.
0: hmm
2: a new twisted ankle. Do you need to go? Just
1: no. She she says she calls she's all right, but uh, okay. Uh, okay, so two uh, very specific inc- incidents. Mm-hmm. One uh, which would have been in the late sixties, when uh, Albert King, the uh, blues guitarist, yes, was getting uh, a lot of attention and had been presented uh, by some publicists as a a relative of B.B. King. And so this fan said, B.B., are you really Albert King's brother? Uh, And he said, uh, no, we're not brothers. Are you his half-brother? Well, no, but but we go as brothers, he said. And she said, but are you any relation to Albert King? And B.B. said, my name was King before I was famous. Now, you have to know that Albert King's real name was Albert Nelson. Mm-hmm. He took the name King because it suited him as, as a persona, as a nom de musique, if you will, mm-hmm. which nobody would challenge. I mean, he was Albert King. Uh, the And the other was
2: Riley King.
1: Riley King, yes.
2: Yeah.
1: Uh, and the other incident, which is very similar, was... Uh, A a young fan, a a girl introduced herself, and she said, I'm so-and-so's daughter. You remember so-and-so. And And B.B. said, Oh, I'm sure I met him. Well, no, you and he were really, really good friends. And B.B. said, Well, I'm sure we would be friends. And she said, No, you used to go fishing together. You and my dad were fishing buddies, used to fish in Arkansas. And B.B. said, I'm sorry, young lady. I've never been fishing in Arkansas. Now, uh, would you like to join us here? Can I get you something? So, uh, when, when pressed, yes. Uh, I'm sorry. I have to stop, David. I'm sorry. Uh, can we pause this?
2: Yes, I'm clicking pause. I'm coming. Pause. And you were saying,
1: yes, uh, these two small uh, stories are representative to me of Beebe's uh, consideration for people mm-hmm. uh, and his insistence on uh, on the truth. Uh, and. Uh, the way he, uh, th- th- this young lady who's evidently her father bragged about his uh, being close pals with Bibi and a, mm-hmm. th- this put her in, in a very bad situation. She, you could tell how uh, how she was uh, becoming more and more stressed uh, and she was demanding that, that Bibi pretend, to, he would have had to pretend to know her father mm-hmm. and he would not pretend in order to uh, to go along with uh, with her, and and he immediately tried to make her feel comfortable and uh, and reassure her. Uh, I mean, these are very small details, but that and uh, buy keep the money and buy a ring for the lady, as if he he knew what we were <laughs> poised to do
2: mm-hmm. back An there. An incredibly uh, generous moment.
1: Yes. Uh, well, I t- I tell the story. In, in the book, at the in the back, uh, about a time when I'm, I I met him by uh, accident in a way. I was checking out of a motel in Mississippi when he was checking in, and we we had a visit. Uh, he invited me to c- come and have coffee with him in his room. Uh, and I mentioned, we just, I mean, this was not a scheduled visit at all. This was just friends getting together. And I mentioned that I I had been laid off from my job, so I was uh, a bit of a rough, rough patch. And he said, let me give you some money. And I said, no, 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 I, I'm not asking for money. He said, I, let me give you some. I, I, I want to help you. Uh, and he f- started fishing in his coat pocket and in his shoulder bag and so on. And he laid out... Uh, bills on the table between us and said, please take them. Uh, And uh, first my pride was going to speak. No, no, no. And then I said, hey, I am unemployed and I have a family and he wants Mm -hmm. to help. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I said, okay. Uh, And and then I said, uh, we were planning on getting Sam a, a good acoustic guitar for Christmas. But then uh, when I got laid off, we said, well, that'll have to wait. And now with this money, we can um, buy that guitar and put it under the tree from Baby King. Uh And Baby said, whatever you decide to do with it is fine with me. Uh, And the, the, the story really ends when Sam brought that guitar with him the next time when we met with Baby and B.B. autographed the guitar. So uh, I mean, this narrative uh, captures uh, the, uh, the generosity of the man. Yes. It's it's also during all of those years that I was following him, he was not subsidizing me in any way, nor was the publisher. I was buying the plane tickets out of my pocket, basically.
2: You were writing on spec.
1: On spec, yeah, the whole thing is on spec, yeah.
2: And uh, you had so you had a difficult beginning to your career as a writer, um, but in a sense, uh, you lived the blues. So what one thing we haven't spoken about uh, much today is the music itself. What is it about the blues, and what is it about BB King that has made for such compelling American music?
1: Okay, the idea of the blues is it has a very simple musical structure uh, which can be employed with some variety here and there, but it's always musically very simple. And uh, it's highly individualistic music. Uh, It's a a solo artist or a duo Uh, or a combo or even uh, a real band, band uh, horns and all that, but it's highly individual music. And the goal is always to invest the music with the maximum emotion, the deepest and most intimate feelings to be expressed in the music itself, played in this narrow Uh, very uh, rudimentary form. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, what B.B. did was to establish the voice of the guitar uh, and to uh, develop a kind of vocabulary for this quest for the deep, deep uh, expression. Uh, And... uh, the the voice of the guitar in live performance was his calling card. And uh, except for a few live performances, his recordings are studio uh, uh, recordings in which uh, he does not replicate the voice of his live guitar. And I uh, was dying to... Uh, ask him why he seemed to avoid that distinctive uh, voice in the studio. And I got to ask him that question when he was uh, my guest at my class at Harvard in my History of Blues course. Uh, And he said, uh, in the studio, you have the luxury of shaping the sound uh, in ways that you cannot on a live stage. Uh, and in the studio, he said, I play the guitar the way I think I want the guitar to sound. But when I'm performing, I have to settle for what I can get out of the amplifier on the stage.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, and that uh, explained it for me. Um you know, I I could uh, read to you from my eulogy, uh, so that we could have in this interview for the record my uh, my understanding of the legacy of uh, B.B.'s musical life. Shall I do that?
2: I think that would be wonderful.
1: Okay. So this is Appendix D in my book, uh, Requiem for a King, uh, remarks read at the Bell Grove Missionary Baptist Church in Indianola, Mississippi, May 30th, 215. And I'm gonna skip straight to the paragraph where I try to account for Bibi's legacy. In the distant future, many generations hence When the history of the 20th century will reside only in books and other artifacts, people will hear blues music and recognize it as a distinct art form, different from jazz, different from rock and roll, different from soul music. And in these distant times, music will be performed and loved, just as 18th and 19th century classical music is performed and loved today. And it is B.B. King who has won for blues this place in our culture. He, more than anyone, is responsible for securing a permanent place for blues in our very cultural imprint. His unique story gave the listening public a persona to identify with the music. His story became the story of the blues. B.B. King has earned a place alongside Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Charlie Parker and Miles Davis in the pantheon of artists who have made the 20th century's new style of improvisational music America's unique contribution to world culture.
2: The book is B.B. King from Indianola to Icon. Charles Sawyer, thank you so much for speaking with me today for the New Books Network
1: can we uh, continue or are we oh, running I, out of <laughs> <can you laughs> no entertain?
2: no we're not running out of this this is gonna have to be edited out <laughs> i th- i thought that was a great place to end but we could we could continue um because uh, of- I, uh, I actually wanted to go back further i wanted to ask um uh why bb B. king what where did he uh, tell us a little bit about where he came from and uh uh and what was it about his upbringing what was it about the African-American experience in the early and mid-20th century uh, that made the blues what it became?
1: Okay, but before I do that, sure, uh, I, I want to say about this eulogy. Uh, when B.B. died, Sherry and I went uh, to, uh, in, to Indianola, to the museum, right away. Uh, and the museum uh, asked me to be a, a kind of uh, resident historian for the press. Uh, and the day before the funeral, uh, I was asked to, uh, to give a eulogy. So I worked furiously all day and wrote uh, a draft. And, uh, and then in the evening, Sherry and I went at it hammer and tongs. And I have to credit Sherry for every bit of grace and poetry in the uh, eulogy that I read, and I'll add to that a little story about the reading of the eulogy during the uh, the funeral there at uh, the uh, um, at the church in Indianola. Uh, during it was quite a long service, as you can imagine, with a lot of uh, music and uh, choirs and all of that. And while we we're sitting there. Uh, We are waiting for my turn, and my son leaned over, and he said, Dad, Dad, when you get up there, get really close to the microphone, because that microphone is really, really terrible. Okay? Yeah, thank you. A little while later, Sherry said, Charlie, when you get up there, get up really close to the microphone, because that microphone is really poor. I said, Okay? Then came my turn, and I stood up and walked up the aisle and up the uh, red-carpeted stairs to the podium. Waiting behind the podium, out of sight, was a was a little man. He said, psst, psst, "Hey," and I bent down, and he said, "Get up really close to the microphone because it really is terrible." <laughs> So, I stepped up and got close to the microphone. I said, my name is Charlie Sawyer, and I wrote a book about B.B. King. And a voice from the audience shouted out, louder! And I recognized that was Sherry's voice. So, um, you know. <laughs> uh, anyway, that's the story that goes with the uh, uh, with The eulogy. eulogy. Uh, okay, so now, you ask about bb king and about uh his uh circumstances uh and his character um, and
2: what it is that uh of helped me how it is that those circumstances and character uh are what uh helped create the blues
1: well he had an answer uh for this Um uh, I mean, this was the kind of question interviewers were bound to ask him. Uh and he always laid credit to his school teacher in uh, Kilmichael, Mississippi, uh, when he was living with his grandmother. Uh Luther Henson was his name. Uh and uh, and I visited Luther Henson and uh interviewed him. Uh and uh Beebe's uh, telling about the, the schooling and about Mr. Hansen, supplemented by Luther Hansen's account of the school and how he taught the kids. It was a one room schoolhouse. He had as many as sixty or seventy kids in the in this one room at one time, all grades up to the grade eight. Uh and he taught them the obvious three R's, but he also taught them uh, practical skills like how to can fruit and how to cultivate fruit trees uh, and how to cook chicken and how to care for livestock, Uh, and he also gave them a kind of cultural and psychological education, Uh, and I think that he taught Riley self-respect and self-improvement, Uh, And that these were deep in his character. Meanwhile, Riley had no siblings. uh, And uh, he lived uh, until his mother, uh, when his mother died, he lived then with his grandmother. His grandmother died when he was 14, leaving him alone because he didn't know where his father was. His father was not part of of his life. And, uh, and then began the year 1940, uh, and uh, he lived more or less in the cabin where his, he had lived with his grandmother. And the landlord for, for that cabin was a farmer uh, who offered him to, uh, to support him uh, on a, with a monthly stipend. Uh, if he would share crop one acre of cotton uh, and supported him with $2.50 a month. Uh, and I, I knew that, the, that this farmer was still alive when I was down there. And I made an appointment and I went and met him at home. He was by then retired. Uh, he was a very friendly, very likable man. Uh, very open, and he spoke with affection about his uh, about Riley and his grandmother and uh, and his aunt and uncle and so on. And at one point he said uh, he st- he went up he stood up and went to the closet and opened the closet and I could see there this long row of ledger books, and he pulled out one and flipped through it and found the ledger pages for. Uh, Elnora Farr, the grandmother, William Pullian, his uncle, Mimey Stells, his aunt, and Riley King for the year 1940. This is Riley King, 14 years old, sharecropping one acre of cotton and living on $2.50 a month. That's B.B. King as Riley King. That's
2: that's, uh,
1: before B.B. became B.B. Yes. When he was still Riley as a boy. Now, I told the, I was staring at this page, which showed uh, things like 50 cents for a wrench, that Riley bought a wrench, which means that his landlord bought it for him and charged him, paid for it and charged him on his ledger. Mm -hmm. And I said to to the farmer, I said, if my readers could see this, it would mean so much to them. And he said, if you promise to get them back, I'll let you take these pages. And I said, yes, yes, please. He took a razor and he cut the pages out of the ledger book and handed them to them to me. So I count this. Uh, and, and this, by the way, ex- except for uh, the uh, 1930 census, is the only real data we have of the existence of Riley King. His birth was not recorded. There is no birth certificate for a Riley King. Mm -hmm. Uh, And um, so this uh, sharecropper's ledger is Riley King's life in the first year that he was really an adult, 14, after his mother. He was living basically alone, raising cotton, uh and uh I count all of this as a series of miracles. First of all that that it was recorded. Secondly that the recording survived in Wayne Henderson's closet. Yes. Third that I found Wayne Henderson and that when I found him he produced this ledger and then that he let me take the ledger pages which I took straight to Bibi King and showed him laid right on the bed in front of him. So he could see his ledger from that year, which he, he puzzled him. He couldn't understand what he was looking at when he first showed, I had to explain it to him. This is a kind of series of miracles, which are now in my book. So, you know, the world can, uh, can share in this, uh, in this miracle. Yes. So, um, uh, I could spin this tale a, a long way. There were people who were kind to to Riley, uh, and uh, Luther Hansen was black, but the next kindness came from a white farming family that took Riley in and made him a in effect, a member of their family and their household. Uh, and he lived with that family. They were white. And they were, and, and he, he said the, the head of the family never called him boy. He always called him son or Riley. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and they were his, uh, uh, his spon- sponsors, his uh, pa- patrons. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, the plantation owner in Indianola, Johnson Barrett, was a fair-minded man. Uh, and and then it, it eventually, uh, many years later, when B.B. Uh, King uh, makes a partnership with uh, Sid, Sidney Seidenberg, his manager, uh, there's this line of people who were ready to be kind and fair with him. Uh, and uh, his... Uh, lack of ties and roots uh, contributed to his fleeing to Memphis uh, when he was about 19, 20 years old. Uh, and he had enormous great fortune in his timing. He came there to Memphis the second time just when WDIA was uh, building a uh, listener base of black Listeners by programming for the black community and by uh, hiring black disc jockeys. And they hired Riley King to be the Pepticon boy and was on the radio uh, every day for 15 minutes by himself, playing with his guitar and singing live and advertising Pepticon tonic. And from there, he went to be the blues boy of Beale Street which shortened to be blues boy, which shortened to BB. And uh, it's a story of incredible luck uh, and kindness uh, and enormous character. Uh, You know that he, as a boy, he had a stammer. uh, And I think that Luther Henson helped him overcome his stammer and his guitar playing. Uh, was instrumental, I think, not to make a pun, uh, in his learning how to be very uh, slow and deliberate in speaking so as not to to, uh, stutter. Uh, Is that enough? (laughs) (laughs) I I, I think that's uh, that's more than enough. Yeah. So
2: once again, the book is B.B. King from Indianola to Icon. Charles Sawyer, thank you so wait, much for— Wait, wait, for wait. I
1: have more. I have more. You have more. <laughs> I have something more that I'm really dying to say.
2: That's, that's fine. Let's that's, say it. Let's say let's, uh, it. Uh, <laughs> speak about
1: the publisher and about this— about the Yes, books. let's talk
2: about Schiffer books.
1: Schiffer books. They are absolutely unique. Uh, they, uh, are a, they have 9,000 titles in their catalog. Uh, their headquarters are in rural Pennsylvania. They have 60 employees. Uh, and you cannot think of a subject that is too exotic or peculiar that, that they would, would not be ready to publish a book about it if they had the right author and the right, uh, materials. How's uh, their
2: marketing arm?
1: Uh, they are uh, that remains to be seen. Yes,
2: <laughs> I, I'm a case
1: in point. Uh, the, the book is widely available and and widely in uh, online for online purchases, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, physically uh, uh, av- available in bookstores. Uh, it's only been out for even less than a month, uh, and uh. We, we they have a marketing team and they uh, they have standing relations uh, to promote their their work. And this is seeing, definitely
2: a trade book rather than an academic book. Um, if I may ask, is this something where are, are they a press where the the author gets an advance or does the author wait for royalties?
1: Royalties, no advances. They Only don't give it. Ro- they don't give No advances. advances to, yeah. So. Uh, I, the, the only money I've spent with Schiffer is buying copies of the book mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, I did not subsidize the production of the book uh, they they didn't they have this standing staff editorial staff and promotional staff and and uh, book designers and so on and and judging from the jobs they did on on this book their book designers are fantastic uh, and and um, so this, they do not give advances, uh, but they invest in in the book by r- producing it.
2: I will say I caught a couple of—the uh, purpose of this interview is not to do a review of the book, but since we're talking about Schiffer, and I hope this isn't you and Sherry, I, I would have assumed that this is the press, okay. but uh, you correctly spell toxin— in terms of T-O-C-S-I-N in the text. And there are a few places where the pictures have the, I guess, the former editor or the publisher of, what was it, the Jackson or the Indianola? Indianola uh,
1: Enterprise Toxin.
2: Enterprise Toxin, where they're spelling it like the chemical, uh, the chemical meaning, (laughs) T-O-X-I-N.
1: Yeah, very unusual term. Yes. Um, So uh, I started with, with uh, Schiffer with a, a contract to do a book with about 150 photographs in it. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, I wanted to do a thorough job of telling the story of the B.B. King Museum. But that is a big story, and it's an important story. It's an important American story. This museum, yes. which now has been, been open for over 10 years, The uh, the building of the museum cost close to twenty million dollars, but the the uh, initiative to do the museum and its execution was strictly a local matter. There were no, uh, you know, United Artists, no big uh, uh, promotional entertainment cooperatives that came in and took this over. No, this, the museum was, uh, strictly a local effort there in Indianola. Uh, and it was a biracial, uh, uh core of about a half a dozen people.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Now the, the location of Indianola is important. It, it is, uh, Bibi's hometown, the best you can do for a hometown for mm-hmm. him. Uh, but where, what is to be said about Indianola? Well, uh, there was a a very serious sociological study done in the nineteen thirties, and uh, is still available today, called uh, uh, The
2: "Color Line," something about the
1: caste and uh, caste and class in a southern town. Mm-hmm. And the author spent a year in the southern town having never mentioned that the southern town is Indianola. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, it's a kind of blueprint for race relations in the Jim Crow uh, period of the South. The other thing to know about Indianola is that's where the White Citizens Council was uh, uh, founded,
0: mm-hmm.
1: uh, which was the arch-segregationist Uh, organization. And now there in this town, there is this magnificent museum in honor of uh, a former citizen of Indianola, a black man, a great world-renowned, world-recognized important artist named B.B. King. That is a story that uh, deserves to be told. Mm -hmm. But to tell it properly, and I was in a position to tell it because I was part of the planning of the museum itself. And I I knew all the the people, all the characters, and I watched the museum uh, from groundbreaking all all the way uh, to its opening. Uh, and, uh, And I went to my editor and I said, I want to do this story. I explained to him the importance of the story It's an important American story. It's part of B.B. King's story, but it's also important about the South and race relations and all of that. But it will practically double the size of the book. Uh, And I can't do that without your approval. And he said, go for it. That's now the longest chapter in the book. Yes. Uh, And it has, uh, you know, like 25 photographs that I took. Uh, and a few that I didn't take. Uh, so uh, it, it is the history of the B.B. King Museum. Uh, and after you read it, you'll all want to, to go there and see it for, for yourself, because it is magnificent. And I can claim a little bit of credit uh, in its creation, and uh, a lot of credit in the telling of the story. Uh, and share that credit with Schiffer Books, because they said, go ahead, Charlie, it'll make the book better. It will increase its uh, scope, increase its uh, market appeal, and I just about doubled the size of the book, and just about doubled its purchase price because they were going to sell it for a lot less before that. Mm-hmm. So that's the that's my the, my agenda. Now, <laughs> now, now you can bid me farewell. <laughs>
2: <laughs> and it's it's hard to do because it's such you know there's so much that you have to tell us. Um, and I have so much enjoyed this conversation, uh, but I do want to leave your listeners something, uh, I, I, I want to leave some material in the book, uh, so that our listeners have, have, some reason to buy it, mm-hmm. um, uh, other than to be able to look at, again, this beautiful cover and all of the beautiful, uh, photographs that, uh that are that are found throughout the book Uh, as you said more than 150 well uh, again the book is bb king from indianola to icon with schiffer press uh, available at amazon and at schifferbooks.com s-c-h-i-f-f-e-r uh charles sawyer once again thank you so much for sitting for this interview and uh, discussing uh your new book with uh the listeners at new books network
1: one last detail Yes. You left out the subtitle of the book.
2: Ah, B.B. Uh, King from Indianola to Icon, A Personal Odyssey with the King of the Blues. There you go. Photos and text by Charles Sawyer. Thank you,
1: Thank you David. It's a great pleasure. I, I enjoyed this tremendously.
2: Likewise.